This is your coffee break. Hi, Jana. Hi, Sarah. <laughs> I'm so glad to talk to you tonight. I have a, a guest that I'm really excited to introduce you to tonight. Her name is Jana Marley's Marin. Jana and I uh, connected over Twitter, and I found out she is not only the editor of the Under the Gum Tree Literary Magazine, but also, I believe, a professor. I moonlight as a professor. You moonlight as a professor. <laughs> so I, I want to hear all about this because you're the first guest I've ever had on the show who has a literary magazine. And I, I want to hear your whole story about oh. yeah, how it started and where the idea came from and, and all of that, if, if you don't mind sharing. Well, uh, I guess I could just sort of start with the beginning of the magazine. So the like the story that I tell is I went to grad school for creative writing and sort of like every other aspiring writer, it was like, okay, I'm going to write fiction. That's sort of what you do. You write fiction or poetry. But um, if you're a prose writer, you write fiction. And my fiction was just really horrible. It was like contrived autobiographical. It, it was bad. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Okay. I, I kind of want to talk about that, but we'll, we'll get we'll get back to that. Okay. And it was towards the end of, of grad school when I discovered the genre of creative nonfiction and realizing that there is a literary genre for telling true stories. It just opened up my world to the possibilities of writing and writing the type of stories that I wanted to write. And all of a sudden, I felt like I could write in my authentic voice without trying to like make it into this fiction story that I don't know, it just wasn't working for me as a writer. And when I graduated from grad school, I was like, okay, where do I read more of this genre? Where do I publish in this genre? The opportunities that I found were few and far between. They still kind of are, although I'm much more familiar now with the literary publishing landscape. But the publications that I found too were also primarily university publications, you know, the typical literary journal is a smaller publication, full text, black and white, regular text stock, paper, not a lot of heavy design or artistic or color elements. Before I was in grad school and shortly after grad school, I started freelancing and that's when I started teaching. And before all of that, I was working for a magazine publishing company which was like your typical consumer lifestyle publication, you know, your holiday gift guide and decorating tips and all that kind of fun stuff. But what I loved about those type of publications were the design elements and the different types of font treatments and the full color glossy pages and what you can do with photography and art, just like a really rich visual tactile experience that I missed when I started exploring the world of literary magazines. That's the experience that I have that I can bring to this publishing forum. And that's really what I tried to accomplish with Under the Gum Tree was how can I publish not just quality writing, but also in a format that is really beautiful in terms of the way that it's laid out and designed and treated. And I wanted to put the work of writers in a format that is beautiful to touch and feel and look at and not just the practical element of having something to read. 
Yes. If that all makes sense. It makes, <laughs> it makes perfect sense. And it, it really goes to um, filling a need that, you know, that was there. There was a there was a void and you created something that filled that. So that's the number one rule of creating something. Creating something that you are looking for personally, you know, it's sort of I think it's the it's the Maya Angelou quote that says, if you can't find a book that you want to read, then you have to write the book. So it's a very similar concept where it's like, if you don't see the thing that you want in the world, maybe that means you should be part of creating it and bringing it to life. That's what I did. And that was nearly five years ago. The whole thing would not have been possible if it weren't for the state of technology, because I started the magazine with a print on demand model, which was essential for the high quality production that I'm doing with the magazine. It is a full color magazine. It is glossy paper. And all of those things cost more when you're talking about the cost of printing. When I started, I was doing a really tiny print run of like 20 copies or something ridiculous like that, which in the world of publishing, it's really unheard of to do such short runs. Mm -hmm. And printers like traditional printers just will they won't even talk to you if you can't do at least 500 or 1000 mm -hmm. copies. So the technology of print on demand really made it possible. Good. I'm glad that the yeah. technology was available for you. Yeah. Like, yeah. that's, that's me, perfect. Me too. And it really was perfect. And I, I do have a traditional print run now. It's still a very small, short print run. But I also still employ the print on demand option. So once my initial run of copies are gone... I don't stock back issues, but people can still buy a hard copy of any issue they want because there's a print-on-demand service where you can just go online and be like, oh, I want a copy of the first issue of Under the Gumtree. Order, it's printed, and it's shipped to them as soon as they buy it. That is so, so awesome. And what do your readers look like? Who are the people who are, who are purchasing your magazine? 45 to 65, primarily white females. I am trying to sort of broaden that demographic a little bit. But I think part of what attracts that gender and age range is the tagline of the magazine is tell stories without shame. And that's just something that really resonates with women in particular who have been taught to keep to themselves and to keep quiet and have felt that their stories have not been heard for so much of their life. So here is a publication that encourages them to speak out and that welcomes them to speak out and wants those stories. It just really attracts the people who have felt that their stories have been so oppressed for so long. I can tell by just the way that your voice changed when you started talking about that. And that was one of the questions I was going to ask was, where did that tagline come from? And, and what inspired you to kind of go in that direction? So part of my process as a writer, I was as I was explaining, was getting to a place where I could share my true story in a true and authentic way without cloaking it in the guise of fiction. There's writers who will argue that there's no such thing as nonfiction, because as soon as you write it down, you're making things up and what's on the page is never going to be the same as reality how do you argue that your memory is accurate, right? Yeah, yeah. You, yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's a conversation for a whole other podcast episode. <laughs> Agree. <laughs> but um, to me, 
your your take on whether memory is accurate or not aside, calling it nonfiction is more about the author claiming that story and owning up to that story and saying to the reader, yes, this happened to me. Yes, this is tragic. This is beautiful. This is whatever it is. It doesn't have to be strictly a tragic, horrible story. Ultimately, what I'm talking about is coming to a place where we are unashamed to tell our story, whatever that story is. So people often hear that, tell stories without shame and assume that means there is no shame in the story. In fact, what I mean is what I said just before, it means that we are unashamed of the story. The writing and the sharing, I believe, is really part of what gets us to that place of being unashamed because you learn how to be comfortable with whatever your experience is. And you also learn that chances are you're not alone in that experience. And what the most beautiful thing that I have experienced when sharing my own story or just witnessing other people share their stories is what I love to call that me too experience where a reader or somebody who's hearing the story orally can connect with a stranger just because they can say, I experienced something so similar and me too. Like there's this connection between strangers in that me too moment. It sounds like even more than being a literary magazine, this is, this is a community you're building or a healing experience that you're providing to people. It sort of started out more as I just want to read and publish these really amazing stories. And then it did turn into this community building with readers and the writers, the contributors who I've published connect with each other around their work once they kind of discover each other and realize that in one way or another, they have that connection around finding the best way to share their personal truth. And that is a very bonding experience. It's so important. It so thank you for thank you for doing that. I'm I'm just curious. Uh, under the gum tree, did you come up with the idea of sitting under a gum tree, or where does the where does the tree <laughs> come from? I'm so curious. When I was in high school, I was in marching band. Really, any wind instrument, it's sort of a no no to chew gum while you play. You are not supposed to blow like sugary saliva through your instrument. <laughs> Yes. I'm I'm nodding because I was a saxophone player and I love chewing okay. gum. So, yep, yep. Okay. Oh, you know. Oh, I know. So, I used to get caught chewing gum in band. Maybe other band geeks out there will resonate with this story, but in my band, if you got caught chewing gum, there was this thing at the front of the band room, just a plain old piece of paper up on the chalkboard called the gum tree you would have to like march up to the front of the room and like stick your wad of gum up on the gum tree. That was sort of like one of my earliest memories of being shamed and, and publicly shamed. And I wrote a story about that experience, which is in the first issue of the magazine. And that is where the name of the magazine comes from. Thank you for sharing that. Thank yeah. you so much for sharing that. It's a funny story, but you're right. There, There's an element of shame in there. And just knowing that that's in sort of the, the first issue, I think is very telling of, of what that becomes later. So gosh, thank you for sharing that. I'm just curious, what was the tipping point 
where you said, yes, I'm going to start this literary magazine? Because it's not something like one day you're like, well, I'm bored. What do I want to do? I know I'll start because <laughs> it's a huge amount of work, right? What got you to start it? I'm sort of blessed and cursed with this personality of just taking the initiative and doing things and trying things. It is a blessing and a curse because it means sometimes I can do cool projects like under the gum tree, but at the same time, I can't ever do only one thing. <laughs> you know, yes. I'm always like chasing <laughs> the, chasing the new shiny object anytime there's an, a new idea or an opportunity. And it's hard for me to not try new things. When I was working at the publishing company, I was the managing editor there for about four years. Uh, you know, I was in my early 20s. I was a very young professional who was ambitious, but also pretty entitled in terms of like, I thought I kind of knew everything and I was working on my master's degree. And even then I sort of knew, okay, someday I'm going to start my own magazine. I don't know what it's going to be. I don't know when it will be, but I, I think I will do that someday. And it really stemmed out of a very arrogant place of just knowing how to do things better than I thought other people knew how to do things. <laughs> mm -hmm. I'm nodding because I'm, I'm having a meet you moment, as you say. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. You know, fast forward like 10 years, I had a blog and I was really wanting my blog to just be a place of telling my personal story. Back then, if you were reading any of the popular philosophy around how to create a successful blog, it was all about, well, it has to be like a how-to blog. You have to like teach people how to do something. And it mm -hmm. has to be like this formula that I wasn't into at all. And I was like, I'm just going to make my blog be like a place for personal storytelling. As soon as I had that idea, it was very obvious to me that, oh, maybe I should incorporate other contributors so that it's not just me always writing. And right then, as soon as I had the idea to incorporate other contributors, I was like, this is my magazine idea. So it took me about a year from the moment of like, oh, okay, this is my magazine idea to conceptualize it in terms of the name and the different elements that I wanted to include and actually finding contributors for that first issue, finding somebody to help me do the design and the layout, figuring out all the logistics around the printing actually printing and releasing that first issue the whole that whole process was about a year oh my gosh that's a big time investment it is yeah so we probably turn it around in about six weeks that's a relatively new accomplishment for us because when writers are submitting to magazines Part of what happens is the new magazines don't get a lot of submissions, mostly because they're new. Mm -hmm. And writers look at publications and how much staying power they have. Because you don't want to publish with a magazine that's like a year old, and then they don't last for long more than a year. So it took us a long time to build up the staying power reputation that I feel we have now. And I feel that the five-year milestone is a big deal in that realm. And we're to a point now where actually we have our content for the next two or three issues already accepted because we're getting that much volume in our submissions, whereas we weren't there a year or two ago. And so having that volume of submissions means that we can turn our issues around much more quickly because we're not waiting to get content. That's got to be an exciting time to have people like 
you know, wanting to get into your magazine. It is. I want to ask you a question that I haven't asked you yet, and I probably should have asked this way sooner. But um, (laughs) just for listeners who might not know, can you explain a little bit about what creative nonfiction is? So it's a literary genre that I basically describe it as the umbrella for the different literary nonfiction forms. So that encompasses anything from the personal essay, the lyrical essay, You could even break up the essay genre into spiritual essays and meditative essays. And then, of course, there's memoir and there's flash nonfiction and there's even literary journalism or narrative nonfiction, which is heavily reported and falls more into the journalistic category. But because of the way it's written, I would still put it under that umbrella of creative nonfiction. So it's all of those different forms of nonfiction. Very cool. So what makes it creative is sort of that you're tying in literary kind of elements to develop a theme? Yes. So it's literary and creative because you're employing the same craft elements that you would for any other genre. So we're talking about things like character development and dialogue and scene setting and description Mm. and detail and all of those craft elements that you learn in a creative writing class we're applying to telling true nonfiction stories. I didn't hear about creative nonfiction until probably my junior or senior year of college. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I, and I, yeah, I feel like it's probably not new because people have been writing nonfiction in, in beautiful ways for centuries. But I love that. And I don't feel like it's uh, it's not really taught at the high school level. Even at the college level, I don't see a lot of creative nonfiction writing courses. They're either memoir courses or personal essay courses, they don't really encompass all the different forms of creative nonfiction. So it's still definitely one of the younger literary genres. And there's one literary magazine called Fourth Genre, which I love because it's sort of staking creative nonfiction as the fourth literary Mm -hmm. genre. So poetry, fiction, drama, and creative nonfiction. So you even started off, now you have your MFA, is that what your master's is? It's an MA, MA. Yes. Um, mm-hmm. So you have your master's in that started off, it sounds like, in more of the, the fiction territory. You mentioned earlier that you didn't feel like you were good at fiction. Do you, can, yeah. you, can you tell me more? <laughs> tell me more about, about what happened there. Well, so I basically was writing fiction because that's what I thought I was supposed to do in grad school as a grad student writing prose because I've never been into poetry. It's not my thing. So I was like, okay, well, if I'm not going to write poetry, I guess that I write fiction. And my fiction was, I used the word contrived because it just felt so fake. And it basically was like chick lit. I don't consider myself to be like a pop writer. And the chick lit genre, I think, is a pop genre. It's a commercial genre. But I didn't know how else to write my stories in a way that made sense for fiction. And so the creative nonfiction genre really allowed me to do more of that self-reflection than I think is allowable in fiction. Mm -hmm. Because in fiction, even if it's a first-person story the self-reflection is almost irrelevant because it's a fictional character. That's where I was really struggling. And and that's where the creative nonfiction genre really just was very liberating for me as a writer. Did somebody guide you to that or did you kind of discover it for yourself? 
I guess it was a combination of both. I honestly don't even really remember. It was like, okay, I'm writing this really horrible fiction. (laughs) And I sort of, at the same time, discovered more traditional memoir, I guess is what you would call it. I started reading Joan Didion and her personal essays and such. And I was like, oh, that's what I want to write. And I basically just went to the advisor of the school where I was going and said, are there any classes in this? Like, can I take classes on this kind of writing? And and who teaches those classes? And at the time, there wasn't any classes offered in that. They were supposed to be hiring a new professor who was going to come in and sort of take ownership of that, of the creative nonfiction slash memoir type coursework. And I was like, okay, well, I'm not in any rush. So I will just pause for a semester or two until he's here. You know, I was working full time and I was going to school part time. So I wasn't like on a timeline for completing my degree and I was paying for it myself. I didn't get any funding or scholarships or anything like that. So I really felt like, well, if I'm going to be the one paying for this, you better damn well be sure to get what you want out of this. So that's what I did. Good. Then I was ultimately able to that professor was Peter Grambois. He is no longer at the college where I went to school, but he's a professor at Denison University in Ohio. You're familiar with college? I've been on that campus. So I I grew up in in Cleveland, Ohio, and I used to do this creative writing thing called Power of the Pen. And they Uh used to have the state finals at Denison. Yeah. Yeah. So he's a creative writing professor there, and he's got several books published. And I ultimately was able to work with him on my master thesis and write a draft of a memoir. What have you done with your memoir since then? Have you published it or is it sitting in a drawer or what? what is the story there? It's sort of sitting in a drawer. When I wrote it, oh, let's see, I was, it was like 10 years ago. I was in my late 20s and it's a, it's a typical sort of like coming of age memoir. So a little bit of backstory on me. I yeah. was raised as an evangelical Christian. It's very conservative, somewhat of a sheltered upbringing. You know, it's like, don't have sex before you get married. Don't date non-Christians. Definitely don't marry non-Christians. So that's how I was raised. And I married an atheist. <laughs> so the, the memoir draft, very strangely, is void of all religion and spirituality. Interesting. Yeah. You know, as I've sort of grown and matured as a writer and just had life experience beyond what I was writing about at the time, it's definitely clear to me that it can still be a coming of age memoir, but the religion and spiritual elements must be part of it. And I think it must also include my most recent journey of spiritual renaissance around how did I end up redefining faith on my own terms and reconciling marrying somebody who doesn't share my beliefs. Oh my gosh, yeah. Is that something you plan to return to? I just generate new material sort of independently and like separate from the current manuscript draft. Because I think if I went back to the manuscript draft and try to weave it in to what the current form, I, I just don't think it would work. So it's probably gonna take me a while to like, get it back to a place where it's like, oh, okay, this is coherent and ready for like sending it out or what, whatnot. I don't know. <laughs> Good. I'm glad you still have it. And I glad, I'm glad that you have plans for it. So speaking of professors and teaching, so you teach yourself now. I do. <laughs> okay. Tell me, yeah. yeah, tell me about that. 
I actually was an adjunct professor for the community colleges where I live here in Sacramento for about eight years. And the, the adjuncting life is not easy because it's, you know, it's contract work. And so it's all dependent on what's available, whether you get courses on a given semester, you're usually relegated to like the freshman comp courses because the full-time faculty get all the advanced stuff and the creative writing stuff. So I did that for about eight years, primarily because I wanted to be in part in the academic environment and I wanted the experience of teaching and being a college professor is something that affords you other opportunities in the world. So I should say I'm more picky and choosy about the courses that I take on now, at least at the college level, because when I started, it was like, okay, I need some sort of steady income. And this is one avenue to that. And thankfully, I'm not relegated to that to making decisions in those in that way anymore. But in addition to that, when if I'm if I have the capacity, I teach privately. So I teach private writing workshops on creative nonfiction, because that is where I'm able to really dig into the genre that I love, as opposed to, you know, the academic essay, which is what you end up teaching in freshman composition. Oh, yes. <laughs> and, and MLA formatting standards and all, all of that. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Yes, yes. <laughs> So um, speaking of that, do you have any suggestions if listeners uh, have maybe never heard of creative nonfiction or who have never given it a try? Do you have any resources if they're interested in getting started? Yes, absolutely. One of my favorite creative nonfiction writers is a woman named Brenda Miller. She writes primarily what I think she would call lyric, the lyric essay which is sort of known for being more segmented and connected through association rather Mm. than like a straight narrative. And she co-authored a book called Tell It Slant. Actually, I have two other books that I can recommend (laughs) to now that I'm like over at my bookshelf. Yay, I love this. This is portable podcasting. This is my copy of Tell It Slant. Oh, mine looks way different. Okay, I have like a super old one, I guess. Yeah. And the subtitle is Creating, Refining, and Publishing Creative Nonfiction. So that's a really great resource. Another one is called Fearless Confessions, A Writer's Guide to Memoir. And that is Sue Williams Silverman. And then lastly is You Can't Make This Stuff Up. And that's by Lee Gutkind, The Complete Guide to Writing Creative Nonfiction from Memoir to Literary Journalism and Everything in Between. Lee Gutkind is also the editor of a magazine actually called Creative Nonfiction. Oh. And they also have an imprint. So they they publish books as well. So that's a really great resource for folks. But yeah, those are the places that I would suggest to start. Amazing. Thank you. I will make sure that I link to those in today's show notes. And so if people are interested in learning more about you or maybe snagging some copies of Under the Gum Tree, what should they do and where should they go? Under the Gumtree's website is real simple. It's just underthegumtree.com. And you can subscribe straight from the website. You can buy digital copies there. You can buy print back issues there. And then my personal website is janamarlise.com. And so that's where everything that I do beyond the magazine sort of lives. Wonderful. And I will link to all of those resources in the show notes for today's episode as well. I kind of want to ask about... You were working and getting a degree and maybe starting a literary magazine. How do you get everything done? I don't know. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) But 
the real answer is I am a structured person. I really thrive under the pressure that requires that I segment my time and say, okay, this block of time is for this. This block of time is for this. And I can sort of just power through a to-do list when I know that I have a limited amount of time. It's easy for me to stay focused and like get done everything that I need to get done. With the magazine, I'm very fortunate to have a staff of volunteers, so I'm not doing it by myself. And in fact, I would not be able to do it without help. Definitely not for as long as I have. I'm really fortunate to have as much help as I do with the magazine. I think I'm up to something like 13 volunteer staff members. Oh my gosh, that's significant. Yeah, and you know, the fact that these folks give their time and energy to the magazine is amazing to me because I really just feel and believe that it demonstrates that the magazine and its mission and sort of what it stands for is not just about me and who I am as a person. It's it's bigger than I am because if it were just about me, people wouldn't be as dedicated as they are. Mm-mm. They would not be jumping to help. Yeah, that's right. I like to ask that because, you know, my podcast is generally about work life and like passion project balance. And so Mm -hmm. I'm always interested in that. Another thing I'm always interested to hear from people is if you have had a mentor who has maybe given you some advice about writing or about life and writing. The closest I've had to a mentor, like a writing mentor, I would say is Peter, my grad school advisor. And beyond that, I mean, you know, grad school is sort of like this magical world where you get to be like totally immersed in your craft and always around people who are also writers and you have access to really amazing writers as your professors. Leaving that environment sort of means you ultimately have to create whatever community or support that you want for yourself. And I think that's sort of what I ended up doing with the magazine My managing editor is somebody who I went to grad school with. So she and I are wonderful friends and colleagues, and we've had the pleasure of working together on a really cool creative project ever since we've known each other, basically. And we read each other's work. I mean, I'm so fortunate to have her in my life because I can go to her and say, hey, I'm working on this thing. Do you have time to read it for me? (laughs) (laughs) And she will. Good. And, um, and it's amazing. And so yeah, beyond like my mentor advisor in grad school, I would say really, they're just my peers who I intentionally build relationships with through my community here in Sacramento and through the magazine. It sounds like you are just in the business of building communities with your readers, with the people who volunteer to work on the magazine. That's really I love. that. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. I'm definitely I definitely want to be around people who like to read and write and talk about reading and writing. (laughs) (laughs) Jana, this has been absolutely delightful. Is there anything else that you'd like to kind of leave us with or anything else you'd like to cover or talk about? Uh, You know, I will just say that if there are any nonfiction writers listening under the gum tree accepts submissions continuously and year round. So please visit us online and check out our submission guidelines. Always looking for new writers and stories to to share and to consider for publishing. So wonderful. And I just made a note to also include that in the show notes for today's episode. 
Jana, you are wonderful. You are doing great work. You are doing good things. Thank you so much for appearing on today's episode. Oh, thank you for having me, Sarah. It's been a pleasure. Mm-hmm.